0: Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving Sixty with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies
1: and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving Sixty. I'm standing next to Tim Curtis. And I'm standing next to Ben Pronk. It sounded cooler in my head. <laughs> it yeah. sounded a bit sort well, of weird. Either,
2: either way, we're going to round table too, so- We are, we are. Clockwise or anti-clockwise.
1: And our guest this week is someone who I personally love. We've mm-hmm. really had a great interaction with Dr. Lise Notabart mm-hmm. from the University of Western Australia through our Resilient Shield project. How did we first come across Lise, Tim?
2: Mm. Oh, we speed dated. Yeah, through uh, one of the federal government agencies, we said we we're looking for an academic partner to prove or disprove our methodology. We received an innovation grant, and we yeah, we did some speed dating
1: across some universities, which was mind blowing. Um, you know, way to make us feel dumb. We <laughs> met. We were definitely the dumbest people in the room in all of those speed dates, and. I was staggered, just amazing uh, fields of research the The number of academics that we spoke to, any one of them would have been awesome to partner with. Um, but Lise uh, in particular, had very similar research interests and, and I think that 's what what really uh, piqued our initial interest in in uh, working with her to stress test our resilience shield model originally from bruges in belgium mm-hmm. and she's an
2: award-winning psychologist yeah uh, and all of her study pretty much is focused on resilience or aspects thereof inclusive vulnerability
1: yeah and we um have, have done a number of, of sort of things alongside lease uh in, in the lead up to the book And the the keystone of it was our resilience survey, Mm -hmm. um, which we developed, uh, fielded, and Lise has uh, crunched the initial tranche of results with some really interesting insights. We're going to talk with her about those.
2: Yeah, and very practical insights. She talks about the necessity of having tools to uh, strengthen our vulnerability and improve our resilience. So we'll talk specifically about what tools she recommends.
1: Yeah, so Lisa's going to, to tell us if our model works. She's going to tell us what within our model moves the needle on overall global resilience. And then we're going to talk about what we've learnt from this initial tranche of results and how we're going to update and um, continuously improve our methodology from there. And the results are in. Let's get on with the show. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Unforgiving 60. I'm Ben Pronk. And I'm Tim Curtis. You certainly are. And we are joined today by Dr. Lise Notabart, um, Who is a very close friend of ours and with whom we've been doing a bunch of work on resilience. And we're going to get into that uh, throughout this episode because Lise has got a fascinating background in it, um, very esteemed credentials in the, the research space. But, Lise, um, in your bio, you mentioned that as a little girl, you always wanted to write a book. I did. And that book Mm. turned out to be a a thesis um, in the the field of psychology. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey from a little girl who wanted to write a book to uh, a doctor in psychology that you are today?
3: Yeah, so it's true. As a little girl, I always wanted to write a book. I had a crack at a, a, a couple of books, I think, as... I, I don't know how old I was, maybe 10, hmm. I wrote a book about these traffic lights that came to life and started killing people. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that is not part of our research currently. Just <laughs> a, yeah, <laughs> children's book, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um,
3: but then as I got older um, and, you know, I was considering going to university, um, I didn't really know what to do with myself. Um, at that stage, so it's not like I always wanted to be a researcher or, or a psychologist. So it was a bit of finding a path there. Um, but I started doing psychology because they told me it's a very broad field, and you can basically do whatever you want at the end of that.
1: And there are no wrong answers.
3: And there are no wrong, wrong answers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: now, clearly, our eagle-eared—are you eagle-eared? What eagle-eyed? Eagle-eyed. Hmm. Elephant eared Elephant eared listeners <laughs> will have picked up um, Lisa's accent So uh, you were born in Belgium? In Belgium, yes, yeah. in
3: Bruges ah. yeah. And so then I went to study at Ghent University mm-hmm. um, And I, so I did psychology there um, And then in my second or third year this, There was this unit that I found fascinating Most of my other students hated it, um, absolutely But it was this unit about how you can apply the scientific method To study psychological phenomena and design really clean, cool experiments where you could manipulate one thing and then see the impact uh, on another thing. Mm. And in that way, find out basically how the brain works, how our mind works. And I just thought that was fascinating that you'd be able to do that. So that was really the reason why I ended up doing a PhD, because I wanted to do more of that myself.
1: That's very cool. I... Um I studied in the UK and had a wonderful social psych lecturer called Dr. Kenneth Payne, who's actually just released a a book on AI and war bots, which Mm. is fascinating. Anyway, he was fascinated by some of the early social psychology experiments, the the classic Milgrams and the the sort of Stanford prison uh, Zimbardo type experiments and found it fascinating. Wonderfully instructive, um, some of the results, but also incredibly unethical. And, and of yes. course, we've, we've got a lot stronger ethics procedures these days, don't we? Yeah, hmm.
3: and those experiments, as with many social, large social experiments, you don't have control over everything. There's so much that happens that you don't have control over. But the so I ended up doing my PhD in cognitive psychology and. In that area, you can set up experiments where you have very tight control over the environment. You basically mimic the environment within the lab and then manipulate certain factors. That means you can study how our attention works or how our memory works or interpretation or cognitive flexibility, any of those kinds of cognitive processes. And so in my research, I was linking that to individual differences in people's emotional experience and their behavior and then their resilience and seeing how the way that we process information around us contributes to why some people are more anxious than others, more worried than others, more resilient than others, and trying to understand those relationships.
1: This is something which I find really fascinating. And I think a lot of times when we think about medical interventions, we think about drugs or physiological changes. But um, the power of the mind, to yeah. to be able to interpret things and even attitude, mindset, you know, the lenses through which we look at life can be massive in terms of how we interpret and deal with traumas.
3: Yes, exactly. And you can't just ask people, you know, what is your filter? What is your lens? Because people are very often not aware that they're, they have that filter or they have that specific lens that is biasing what they process or how they process it. So that means in our field you can't just administer people a bunch of questionnaires and get at how their mind works. So you have to devise experiments that reveal how their mind works without them asking. And that's what I find so fascinating, having to have that creativity and that innovation to develop these cognitive paradigms, very often computer-based, to kind of then reveal how someone's mind works.
1: Sounds almost sinister the way you, you you're using your hands like, people <laughs> yes. but it it is about sort of understanding someone's background and and uh, like you say those unconscious biases. Yeah, trying to to sort of shine a light on those.
3: Yeah, and then what we do is so we try and understand those unconscious biases. And then we try and see if we can change them. So we develop computer tasks where we try and nudge people's cognitive biases in a more adaptive direction and see if that then changes their emotional experience, their resilience, their behavior, to see if those counter biases make a causal contribution to those processes because they might just be a side effect of anxiety, for example. Um, But we're finding very often they they contribute to causing elevated anxiety or elevated depression or worry or resilience or lack of resilience. Mm. So we do these experiments in the lab where we try and nudge them and see if they have that effect. And then other people can then use those kind of training paradigms that we developed to use as add-ons to therapy, for example, Mm -hmm. or as preventative methods or as homework for therapy, for example. Do you see
1: um, some of these biases stretching uh, or being culturally specific? Like, have you seen differences in terms of your research uh, in Europe to your research in Australia from a a cultural perspective? Mm.
3: Not really. So those kind of biases... I would I can't say it tends to be quite universal because even Europe versus Australia it's still very you yeah. know <laughs> yeah Similar. it's it's a specific culture um we do see them in some of the in the international literature as well um but it still tends to be mostly white populations that are investigated, mm. so I can't really talk about how um how how broad it goes these biases, but a lot of the cognitive processes that we have are quite universal um there are differences. Um, de- developmentally so the type of maladaptive attention biases that we see in adults they tend to be flipped in kids hmm. um, which is is interesting and it depends also on the type of um, kind of stimuli that you present people with so if you're looking at general anxiety people seem to be quite anxious people seem to be quite vigilant for things that might cause them that anxiety, whereas if you're looking at very specific fears, people tend to be very avoidant of Mm. that kind of information, like spiders or snakes or birds.
1: And so that that specific uh, vigilance, does that create almost an echo chamber or confirmation bias where people are looking for something to be anxious for and they're seeing it everywhere?
3: Yes. And then, of course, the world becomes a very scary place Mm. if you're constantly picking up on potential threats in the environment. At any time, there's more information that comes at us than we can process. So you have to be selective in what you pay attention to. And if you're always paying attention to the most threatening things in the environment, the world is going to start to look like a dangerous place Mm. and that's going to further fuel your anxiety and, as you say, it becomes this kind of vicious loop.
2: Lise, what is resilience?
3: So resilience is always... We talk about resilience when we're talking about dealing with adversity. So something really bad happens um, and... Resilience relates to how people respond to that, mm. and so you would say a resilient person deals can deal with adversity in a way that is a bit better than um, a less resilient person. Mm. So it's always you can you can look at a resili- resilience in terms of, for example, emotional resilience. That means your emotions coming out of adversity are they more or less affected than someone else? Or you can look at behavioral resilience. For example, are you still able to um, function at work? when you're going through adversity. So there's different elements to it, but it's basically how people cope with adversity.
2: Mm. And you changed our thinking a little bit on vulnerability and uh, you informed us that resilience is different to vulnerability. So what is vulnerability?
3: So if you think about resilience as being a set of factors that help you cope better with adversity than you would expect, given a particular adversity, like it's very normal that... If you're going through um, an adverse situation, that that has an impact on you. That's completely normal. But some people seem to be less affected than others. Um, And that's the resilient part. You're doing better than than someone else. Vulnerability is a a set of factors that make you do worse than someone else. That makes you more vulnerable um, to having negative effects placed on you by that adversity.
1: Mm. And that was certainly something that we found really interesting. We'll we'll get on to our resilience survey and the amazing work you've done in crunching the first tranche of data out of that. But to Tim's point, I think we always thought they were flip sides of a Mm. a sort of Janus-faced coin, you know, that that they were just uh, the opposites of one another. But they act uh, somewhat independently of one another. They can
3: act somewhat independently, and there's going to be some factors that will help your resilience and there's going to be some factors that will contribute to your vulnerability or kind of um, ameliorate your vulnerability a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if you see resilience as um, a set of tools that Mm -hmm. people have to cope with adversity, then some tools are going to help you do better uh, than other people. Um, Some tools or lack of some tools are going to mean that you do worse as compared to some other people when you're facing adversity.
1: And I think before we leave the definition, um, what Lisa's just described was a massive, uh, I guess it was a missing part in terms of our understanding and our working definition as we were writing the book. Um, We knew that there had to be some sort of Stress or some Mm -hmm. sort of adversity, and we knew that you had to come out the end in one piece. But I think we were initially thinking you had to come out sort of as well as you went in or maybe even a bit better for it to be resilient. And, Lise, you really drew our attention to the fact that sometimes you simply won't. The adversity will be so significant that you will come out worse. But that idea of it being relative to the adversity faced and relative to to what might be expected or what other people might um, uh, suffer... I think that was the missing part in our understanding that that there is a lot of relativity involved in this concept of resilience.
3: And I think it's important also to send the message that it's completely normal to be affected by adversity. Um, And so it will have an impact on your emotions and maybe your performance at work. But you can, relative to the same adversity, some people are going to do better than others. And we want to understand why that is the case. Mm. What makes some people cope with the same adversity better than some others? Mm.
2: So ergo, in the toolkit, you might be doing things that are not improving your resilience but are diminishing your vulnerability?
3: Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
0: Well, why don't you just wait here at the bar while we'll I
1: go outside and go around the corner? Down along the coast maybe down by the swell Tune in to the big US the time? which is a wonderful segue into some of the findings <laughs> from our survey. So um, for our listeners, uh, we, as in Tim myself and my brother, Dr. Dan Pronk, Um, became interested in resilience after seeing a lot of our friends going through traumas, including uh, combat, and having pretty markedly different reactions on the, the back end of it. Some people seemed to thrive and prosper, get stronger as a result. Some people seemed ostensibly unchanged Mm -hmm. and other people really had um, negative consequences and so we got very interested in well, what is this it can't just be physical Mm -hmm. fitness and mental toughness because kind of we're all pretty physically fit and mentally tough we figured There must be a bunch of factors that lead into this. And so we developed the Resilience Shield model. Um, But it was really important to us that it wasn't just our anecdotal experiences that buttressed this concept. Um, So we did a lot of research into the existing literature on resilience, um, augmented our model on the basis of that, and then developed a survey which we... um, Used or we developed from a bunch of existing peer-reviewed screens, which essentially were acting as proxies for the different layers in our shield. So the innate layer, the mind layer, the body layer, the social layer, and the professional layer. We got some existing proven metrics and and cobbled them together in what we thought would be a workable fashion to to sort of measure the the shield. We got. Um, uh, well, we've now got uh, just about two thousand responses to that survey. I think we threw sixteen hundred at least as part of a, a federally government uh, sponsored research grant, and we said, "Break the model." You know, we really wanted to know: was was did this thing work? Did it actually measure and add up to a, a concept that we could legitimately say is resilience? And importantly, what were the big bits within each of those layers that actually um, moved the needle on resilience? And I I was fascinated by the results you came back with. Could you provide a, a bit of an overview of, of that initial analysis?
3: Yeah, so the we did structural equation modeling for the stats fans out there mm-hmm. to look at how each of the measures that you incorporated in the survey contributed to each of the layers and whether they did and, and how strongly they did. And then how strongly each of the layers were related to the measures of resilience to see, you know, do each of these layers contribute to this factor that is resilience. And we found that, yes, each of the layers that were indexed in the survey do contribute to resilience. And the measures that you have in there in the survey, um, looking at the different layers, they, uh, for the most part, contribute to indexing that layer. So there's good evidence, statistical evidence, in the survey that supports the resilience shield model. Mm. Um, So
1: we don't suck? You don't suck <laughs> in that particular <laughs> yeah,
2: facet. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe you know our good, model doesn't suck. Good luck, rather than yep. good management. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but because your model was evidence-based as well from mm. the literature, yeah. Um, you know that that make and the measures that you have are well validated measures. Obviously, that helps in in testing this model and and seeing how it works. Mm. So we found we looked at resilience because the questionnaire that you had in there allowed us to look at vulnerability and resilience separately. Mm. And interestingly, some of the layers contribute more to one of these factors than the other factors. So for example, the body layer that you had, sleep, exercise, diet, that one um, helps with both resilience and vulnerability. So that's kind of the basics of good resilience. You need to have healthy body and a healthy mind. um, And so better sleep, better diet, you know, enough exercise mm. is really going to help you build your resilience and decrease your vulnerability. And some people might go, well, wow, but I already eat healthy, I already sleep enough. Um, I exercise. And that's true uh, for a lot of people. But it's often also the first thing to go when people are experiencing yeah, yeah, adversity. Yeah. And so when that happens, you kind of need to check in with yourself and going, well, am I still eating healthy or am I just you know, doing takeaway meals or did I stop exercising? Um, because it's the first thing that falls away and it's a really, really important component.
1: Mm. And so before we leave the body layer, the, the MVP, the most valuable player from the, the body layer in terms of our research? Sleep. Yeah,
3: Sleep is very important. And we know this from all of the mental health research as well. Sleep is just really important, and it's kind of an invisible contributor sometimes. People don't always realize how important sleep is to them, and it connects with a lot of the diet, exercise um, factors as well because you know, if you have a big meal late at night, you won't be able to sleep that well. Mm. If you drink a lot of alcohol, that's going to impair your sleep. So everything kind of centers around that sleep.
2: What's the magic number, Lise, in terms of sleep hours per night?
3: It depends on your age, but for people our age, it would be about seven to eight hours. Mm -hmm.
2: And the older you get?
3: The older you get, the less sleep uh, you need. Um, Teenagers tend to need more, also have a a shifted um, cycle, so they, they tend to fall asleep later which is why early school days are really really bad idea but and
2: does it yeah okay that's yeah. interesting so um does it differ markedly from teenagers to people in their middle age to the older demographic
3: not that markedly um so as i said it's the the delayed shift of and teenagers um whereas then we tend to you know fall asleep a little bit more early or it's better for us to go to sleep a little bit more early um but generally still you need no matter what life stage you're at, you need enough sleep. Mm.
1: Yeah. And so the the body layer is pretty important for both uh, resilience and decreasing our vulnerability. The mind layer I found interesting from a statistical point of view that uh, the way we were, were collecting data on the mind layer sort of broke our model, didn't it? It did.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it was very difficult to differentiate the mind layer from the resilience measures. And that can mean either two things. People were interpreting them in the same way. And therefore, they measured the same thing mm-hmm. or the mind layer and or the mind layer very strongly contributes to resilience. And that's the downside of self-report questionnaires. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, if people see two things that are highly similar. They interpret them in the same way, even though we meant we mean them to measure different constructs and then it's kind of difficult to separate them. So what we were seeing is that the way that the mind layer was measured was very strongly overlapping with the measures of resilience.
1: I, I found two really interesting things in that because when we dug back into the, the screens that we we're using for the mind layer, or, and one in particular, and the screens we were using as a benchmark for overall resilience, the peer-reviewed stuff, the questions were very similar. And I, I think yeah. even just at a lay level, you can see that uh, even in the academic research They're kind of talking about the same thing, strong mind and strong resilience. And then from uh, historical examples, and I keep citing things like Nelson Mandela, uh, James Bond Stockdale, Mm -hmm. an American Air Force pilot shot down, spent four years in the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. Um, They clearly didn't have good optimal diet, sleep, exercise, (laughs) clearly didn't have good social interactions, probably not a lot of professional fulfilment. But what kept them going was, was purely the power of the mind. And so I think from that historical, anecdotal sort of perspective, yeah. it kind of stands to reason that the mind's going to be a really important component. Mm.
3: Definitely. Yeah.
2: Well, is it? And, and, you know, even more recently, we talk about professional sports people who are at their, one, professional peak, but also their physical peak. A great example, Glenn Maxwell, who wins a game from, for Australia on a Sunday. The next day is on mental health leave, which yeah. is fascinating.
1: And and even in that field where you've got people at just such elite levels of fitness, Mm -hmm. the the differentiator is often in the head rather than the the physical, yeah. Kanye West. Yeah. He, he,
2: you'd say, what, top tranche of musicians worldwide and regularly has mental health issues. So I'm fascinated with the mind layer and it's our foundation layer. As Mm. you know, even before body, we put mind first in, Mm. in our model.
3: Yeah, and people can often compartmentalize, being really, really focused on their jobs, for example, but then they step away from their jobs and everything falls apart. Uh, and that's an interesting, mm. I think, process as well, where people have that flexibility to, 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 you know, think very adaptively or function very adaptively in one context, but then they move to another context and they fall apart. And that's something about resilience as well. It's not because... You have certain tools, resilience tools or or a strong layer, for example, that that is going to work in all situations because some of these layers are going to be better for some situations than other situations. Mm. Um, So you can't say one person is a resilient person and they're going Mm. to be able to deal with anything. Mm. It's very, very dependent on the type of adversity that people experience as well.
1: Mm-hmm. we talk a lot in the book about that sort of domain specificity yeah. you know you can get uh, through inoculation through experience through skills and tools um uh, you know lower your sort of i guess vulnerability against certain stressors but but still have the the possibility of something else sneaking up on you and it raises a really i find a fascinating question and that's that tension between uh specialism and or being a specialist and being a generalist, and yeah. we see, I think, in a lot of high performance areas, people naturally did become specialists. And so, um, you know, whether that's the the sort of stockbroker who's who's at work the whole time and really on top of her game in that area, versus a professional sports person, mm-hmm. versus the elite soldier, um, that speciality comes at a cost, I think, in terms of global general resilience. And if if that uh, particular Vocation gets taken away all of a sudden. It can Mm. strip out a lot of the the mechanisms that are providing the resilience.
3: Yeah, especially if this is uh, situations that you ended up in as a result of training and you were trained very specifically to Mm. learn to deal with these kinds of stressors that you're going to encounter in your professional environment. But then that goes away and you're put into another environment and you don't have the tools to cope Mm. with adversity that comes up in that environment. And then you suddenly feel completely kind of um, out of control, out of your depth, but you're used to being very much in control and being Mm. able to do everything. And and that distinction, people don't like being out of control. (laughs) Mm. It's a a human trait. We have a lot of difficulty feeling out of control. You could see that in the pandemic as well. Mm. Um, Toilet paper crisis and so on, Um, often driven by feelings of lack of control. And then people try and do things to bring back that control. Sometimes they're not as adaptive.
1: (laughs) (laughs)
2: disruption, and I I don't want to leave mine, I do want to come back to it, but just following that train of thought, um, is disrupting routine going to uh, increase vulnerability or decrease resilience?
3: It's going to depend on the type of person that you are. Some people have real difficulty with disrupted routines. Some people love it. Mm. Um, They don't want... Um, a life where every day is very consistent and very much the same. So first of all, I would say it will depend on your personality, and then it will also depend on whether you have the tools to kind of deal with that disruption, yes or no.
2: Okay. So it's sleep, diet, exercise for the body layer. What does the literature say we can do for the mind?
3: There's a lot of techniques that you can do to strengthen your mind um, in terms of, for example, emotion regulation, If you're feeling stressed, being able to identify that you're feeling stressed, what are the physiological symptoms that you have? What are the thoughts that you have when you become very, very stressed? And then being able to regulate those emotions, for example. That is some tools that you can learn in therapy, for example, Mm -hmm. um, to help you deal with calming your mind and calming your emotions in particular situations. So that's one example of being able to train your mind. Um, another example would be planning, organization. That that's kind of, those are cognitive skills as well that you can learn mm. to to deal with if new situations arise. For example, you know, if you've never traveled before and suddenly you have to do this really long trip where you have to be on three different flights and navigate all these airports um, you can plan and organise that and make sure that you feel in control, that you know what's going to happen and that is going to help you feel less anxious about doing it and doing it in a way um, that also makes you less anxious. Mm.
1: One thing I find really interesting is this concept of an internal locus of control and the ability mm. to uh, feel that that you have, um, uh, you know, the capability to deal with situations as they come to you. I certainly remember... Um, for a different research project, interviewing a psychologist who'd worked on a number of essay selection courses. And of course, one of the things we're always trying to find in that area is the holy grail. Is there a way that we can just do a couple of measures that correlate with yeah. success? And of course, it's impossible to do so. But One of the strongest correlates was that uh, concept uh, between successful uh, completion of the course uh, was uh, that concept of internal locus of control. Can you talk to a bit of what that means and how we might uh, try to improve that within ourselves?
3: So locus of control means um, who do you think has control over your life, your situations? Is it you? That means you have an internal locus of control? Or do you think predominantly what happens to you is outside of your control? And it's other people, other situations, other factors that determine what the outcomes will be. That means you have an external locus of control. If you have an internal locus of control, you think, well, I'm responsible for the outcomes in certain situations. That means you'll be more likely to take action, be proactive and work towards getting positive outcomes rather than negative outcomes. And so you feel in control, which you just mentioned, people like feeling in control, mm-hmm. and that's going to contribute to positive outcomes. Whereas if you feel like everything around you is determined by other people, other situations, it's all just luck. You feel very much out of control. You feel like you can't really do anything to change your destiny, and that is not good for people, mental, people's mental health and resilience.
1: And certainly in the statistical, in our survey, the um, Vulnerability was characterised in three categories uh, rigidity, powerlessness, and alienation. Yes. We'll come back to alienation when we talk about the social layer, but certainly that powerlessness links to the, the locus of control. Yeah. And I think the rigidity links to, to your question earlier, Tim, about this idea of, you know, does it have to be in a routine? It does have to be a schedule, and don't like it when people move my cheese. Yeah. So if I have an external locus of control, how does that translate
2: psychologically? What does that mean for me? What might I experience if it's everyone else's fault?
3: You might experience that you don't have a lot of control over your situation, over your Mm -hmm. life. Um, You might feel like you're blaming others frequently for what's happening um, and feeling like you can't really do much to change uh, any outcomes. And so that's very disempowering um, and could lead to depression, anxiety, worry. Um, but what you can do, because these are beliefs that we have. It's it's not that for some people, you know, their whole environment is determined by other people. And for some people, their whole environment is determined by themselves. We have beliefs about these things. And mm. you can change those beliefs. Again, you can get um, help in therapy to do this. Um, or you can try and look at situations and go, okay, which aspects of this situation do I have control over? You might not have control over everything. But you're going to have control over a part of the situation, or at least in how you respond to the situation. And so learning to identify what you have control over and then taking action to better your circumstances or avoid negative outcomes will help you feel more in control and will lead to these kind of positive um, emotional outcomes and, and increased resilience.
1: Which, of course, and we keep banging on, well, I keep banging on about stoicism, which I love as a personal philosophy. And, you know, 100 AD, uh, Epictetus was uh, writing about exactly the same sort of thing, being able to uh, differentiate between what you can control and and what you can't. And what you can't control, yeah. devote your efforts to, to, um, you know, moving the needle, the things you can.
3: Mm. So we do a lot of research in our lab on the difference between productive and unproductive worry. Mm. Because there's this kind of idea that worry is bad for you, you shouldn't worry. That's not true. There's plenty of stuff in our lives that we do have to worry about, (laughs) you know, paying your mortgage, (laughs) those kind of things. But it's it's adaptive for you to worry about things that you have control over and worry in a way that means you're going to take action to do the thing that is going to get you the best outcomes, but not worry about things that you have no control over whatsoever, because you're just going to go around in circles Mm -hmm. and you'll be never able to come to a solution and stop worrying because there is no solution. There is no control. So shifting people from being unproductive warriors to being productive warriors can help them have better mm. emotional outcomes and better resilience. A
2: productive warrior. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's cool. Uh, well, before we leave the mind layer, there's a lot of people saying that we should practice mindfulness or we should meditate. What does the neuroscience tell us about the importance of those things?
3: It does show that it's effective in alleviating um, anxiety, depression, and providing better emotional outcomes, Um, practicing mindfulness. And it's that kind of disengaging from your environment, focusing on your internal thoughts and just practicing letting something come in and letting it go, rather than getting stuck on something, Mm. just practicing, letting it come in, letting it go. Uh, and that can be very effective to then help you deal with stuff as as it comes up in everyday life.
1: And we cite some what I find fascinating research in the book about the actual um, uh, neuroplastic effects of meditation and certain researchers indicated that it may be able to laminate pathways between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. So give your thinking brain a chance of uh, getting in front of the, the amygdala knee-jerk reaction mm. to, to stressors, which links to your point earlier about emotional regulation.
3: Yes, exactly. We have this quick and dirty route through the amygdala that makes us respond, but we can also take the slower route through the prefrontal cortex to go, okay, you know, I got this initial reaction. It's actually not a snake. <laughs> it's just a branch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, calm down, step over it, everything will be fine. Yeah. Mm.
2: Very cool. Do you meditate?
3: I do not. <laughs> <laughs> that
2: was an ambush question. Yeah, it was. I was very curious about that. Should we get social?
1: Uh can we do one final bit on the mind layer, which mm. I found really interesting out of our research? We'd included a growth mindset screen oh, in yes. our survey. Um and I think largely I'd wanted to do that because I'd found this concept late in life. So because and of I, your fixed mindset, you had to have the growth <laughs> mindset. Exactly. Yep. Um, And and I'd found it really useful uh, for for my own perspective and I think for my own sort of resilience. Um, But the the survey sort of didn't indicate that it was moving the needle that much.
3: It was significantly contributing to resilience. So it was important. Mm -hmm. It was just if you put it next to mindfulness, mindfulness was carrying a lot of the weight there. Um, So if you're going to choose between one of the two, maybe practice some mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's also important to remember this was this growth mindset was put in in the mind layer it might be contributing through different pathways as well yeah like the professional layer mm-hmm. there was a bit of evidence that maybe it would have been well suited there as well mm-hmm. so i and wouldn't give up on it yet
1: i won't <laughs> i'll i'll keep trying to move my fixed mindset but um and and this is exactly the reason why we we're, we're doing this analysis um we intuitively thought the model was sound we're delighted that statistically it seems relatively sound But we really want to to keep improving it and Mm -hmm. keep improving the the way we measure it um, and, importantly, the interventions that people can make. Um, And your point there, you know, we've all got limited hours in the day. Part of what we're hoping to do with this survey is to allow people to identify areas where they're relatively strong and maybe areas where they need more work and Mm -hmm. focus on those. And then within those areas where they need work, say your mind layer sort of tides a bit out. Then, you know, what's going to move the needle for you, your short periods of time that you can devote to it? And as you mentioned, mindfulness is a, a great example of of, a, of something that really does have an impact on, on the mind. Life. Yeah.
3: And often to change your thinking patterns or your unconscious biases, you're not going to be able to do that in one session um, once a week or once a month, for example, because we're so we're so used to thinking the way that we do and having these biases. It's like learning a completely new skill to the point where it becomes kind of automatic like driving. It takes a lot of exercise mm-hmm. and a lot of practice to make this a new habitual thing. And this is why mindfulness works best if you do it repeatedly, you know, um, very diligently, every day or multiple times a week, because it takes practice to build a new habit like that. And that's going to be the case with anything that we have in the mind layer, even when it comes to locus of control, for example. It's not, you know, seeing one situation and thinking, where do I have control over, but it's doing this over and over and over and over again to foster that sense of internal locus of control.
2: talk about social support systems our social layer is the next one and a couple of things that I was fascinated with was Dr Vivek Murthy US Surgeon General has said that loneliness is an epidemic quote unquote Mm -hmm. and he equates loneliness to the physiological um, as a physiological relationship with smoking 15 cigarettes a day so if you're lonely the physiology he says is you know, the same effect of negative effect of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Can we talk about social support and its relationship into resilience and or vulnerability? <laughs>
3: <laughs> so we know from a lot of past research that social support is really important for resilience. So it was really good to see in your model that that is one of your layers as well and, and that you have had indexed that. And we find again in your survey as well, the social layer, really important contributor to vulnerability in this case, diminishing your vulnerability, as well as strengthening your resilience. But we found it was more strongly related to the diminishing vulnerability.
1: And again, I I hark back. It, It was interesting to me to really unpack that idea of vulnerability in our survey sense, rigidity, alienation, powerlessness. I found it really interesting and and kind of intuitive that that your friends would would help with that, mm. you know particularly the alienation that's pretty obvious, but you know a good supportive friend network can help with that that um, uh, decreasing feelings of powerlessness you know good yeah. friends lift you up and and make you see things from different perspectives and and they're your your cheer squad yeah. and that that rigidity I found interesting as well that you know the the ability to to sort of roll with the punches as things get disrupted
3: yeah, because sometimes you need to look at. A situation from different perspectives and you might not be able to do that on your own but if you have friends there that help you look at a situation from different perspectives then that can help broaden your view about a particular situation um, and yeah, you'll feel less alone mm. you'll feel supported you're not going through this alone all of these things will help diminish your vulnerability to having to cope with stressors They might, as the the statistics were showing, increase your resilience a little bit as well, but very strongly they'll help you not kind of dive off the deep end um, when you're facing adversity.
1: In, in our model, we talk about, you know, the stressor as being chronic or acute, and you've got the absolute stressor. You can't really change that in mm. a lot of cases. But we do tend to add what we call a perceptual bubble on top of that. We can make things worse by the way we perceive them. Definitely. And in many ways, yeah. I look at that reduction of vulnerability as shrinking that perceptual bubble, you know. The bad things still happened, but reducing our vulnerability and some of those feelings can help shrink the, the negative layers we can tend to add on top of
3: it. Yeah. And resilience is not only in in response to one huge negative event that happened to you, like a car crash, but it can also be more chronic where you're faced with adversity day after day after day, and it just adds up and it keeps building up. For example, if you're in a very, very stressful work environment or you're a parent and, and there's um, a situation where it's very difficult parenting, like say you're a single parent or you have mm. a child with a disability, it's it's chronic adversity that you're experiencing. And so your social network can also help you there in terms of getting that support Instrumental support, emotional support, getting that, you know, being able to disengage from the situation after work, for example, or in the evenings going out with friends, at least you can kind of let it all go for a little bit uh, and engage with your friends. So those are all different ways that your social network can help reduce that vulnerability.
2: Considering biases, friends or family, which one makes a decent contribution to diminishing vulnerability or increasing resilience in that social layer.
3: So in the survey that you guys put out, it was friends that had the biggest contribution. Um, More than family, although family did contribute significantly as well, but it was friends that kind of moved the needle more. Mm.
2: Sorry, mum and dad, that's why I'm not coming for dinner on Friday
1: (laughs) night, I'm going to the pub (laughs) instead. (laughs) It it was interesting. The three things we measured in the social layer were friends, family, and significant other. And I think there was a a bit of uh, interpretation overlap. I certainly, Mm. when I think of family, I think of my wife. Um, And so those two metrics kind of overlapped, I think, in my interpretation and, and probably in a lot. And so there was correlation there. We
3: could see that in the data as well, that they kind of moved together, these two. Yeah. Yeah.
1: But it was interesting, you know, that old saying, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. If you've got a wonderful, supportive family, like I know Tim does, um, and, and and I'm very lucky to have the same, um, clearly that's going to be a positive thing for, for your resilience. But a lot of people aren't in that position, are they? Yeah. Yeah,
3: exactly. And it's also important to think about this particular sample and what might the characteristics of the sample be because there's different stages in life where your family might become more or less important. Again, if you're a younger person, family is more important because you're very dependent on your family. Maybe the same when you're an older adult um, and you have a very supportive family there that that helps you. But um, if we assume that most of the demographic in this survey is kind of our age as well, this is the age bracket where friends will become very important in addition to family as well. Mm.
2: Should we go to work? Mm. Uh, the professional <laughs> layer is our next layer. Now, if um, they are really only few options for us in our professional lives. One, we can really dislike our job and it can be incredibly stressful because of our dickhead boss. Or conversely, we take a lot of fulfillment out Mm. of our professional lives. So we saw that that was also a significant contributor to diminishing vulnerability and or resilience. Um, How did that look to you?
3: So this one was... So we looked at professional self-efficacy, how well you feel that you're doing uh, at the job, and that was more strongly related to building resilience. And that is something that you can see in the literature as well, that positive self-esteem, having a very good positive view of yourself and your skills and abilities can contribute to resilience. And often that is something that we are getting through the workplace. Mm. For a lot of people, that is something that you get through the workplace. You can also get it from... um, Outside of the workplace, if you um, have a nine to five job, but you're very um, active in organisations, for example, outside, and you get that sense of self-efficacy and and kind of pride in your skills and abilities outside of that. But for a lot of people, it is through their workplace.
2: Very cool. And Lise, what about the differences across genders? Do you see any drivers that show males or females are less or more resilient and across any of those layers?
3: That is a very good question. Uh, We haven't actually looked at gender differences yet. From the literature generally, it seems that women tend to be more resilient than men. Um, I would suspect that that is often, that might be because women tend to have stronger social networks, but that is certainly something that we can check in your data set as well.
2: Yeah, that'd be a good next step. And, And the other one that's a Uh, That's, you know, we've discovered, I think, in the last couple of months, Ben, working with a pastoral company is how vulnerable farming communities are, Mm. particularly men um, in farming communities. Uh, Anecdotally or in the literature, what does rural v. urban life look like with relation to resilience?
3: It's true. There's Unfortunately, there's higher rates of mental health issues and suicide among farmers. And it can be a variety of factors that contribute to that in terms of strength of social network, social support, because you're, you're more isolated from other mm. people. Also, stereotypes about masculinity, for mm. example, and, and not feeling like you can ask for help or you can express that you're not coping very well. Um, that can contribute m- more in um, rural areas as well and means that people wait too long to ask for help um, and then it kind of it can spiral into wi- being withdrawn self-isolating and can that way kind of make everything worse and there's the the insecurity associated with farming for example uh, if there, if you have droughts it's not a steady income mm. right so if there's Major factors like droughts that operate, it causes a lot of stress Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of financial stress. And um, that is going to be very difficult to cope with as well.
2: Mice plague at the moment on the East Coast. Yes. Horrendous. Yeah. In fact, in the sessions we did have with farm managers, they talked about the importance of their working dog um, as a companion Um, you know, in in periods of isolation. And the literature also speaks to the value of pets. Yeah, pet
3: ownership tends to be associated with better resilience. Dogs more than cats, I believe.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Stands to reason. Um, So what do we need to do next? We've done the analysis of the research. We're going to make a few changes to the survey. Yes. And... um, as Tim mentioned, we, we've collected a lot of data, uh, demographic data. Part of what we do hope to do as we collect this is look at some of those demographic inputs, yep. you know, geographic location, gender, age, um, age is a fantastic mm. one, income I, I'm fascinated in um, as well. And ideally, we'd get to a point where we could have a predictive aspect to, to our, our data. How how would that work from a sort of a regression analysis um, statistical uh, perspective.
3: To look at predictive data? Yeah. Well, ideally, we would have several time points at which we're measuring all of these factors. And mm. then we can look at, well, what we measure that baseline, how well does that predict people's resilience, say, three months later, six months later? And what has happened in between? Uh, any adversity that people experienced, and how well were they able to cope with that adversity? So that would be a really exciting data set to have to be mm. able to look longitudinally at what happens and what are the predictors of how well people cope.
1: Very cool and and the thing to circle back to our initial discussion on the definition of resilience uh, that we are looking at adding for the next tranche of, of survey updates is this idea of measuring the adversity faced. Yeah. Currently the, the model doesn't take into account what people might be going through and we had a, a, some anecdotal feedback from a lady who was a single mother, toxic family, you mm. know, very low on the, the social layer. Um, but her argument, which I think is very valid, is that she's, she's demonstrating resilience because of that um and uh yet the the survey as it currently stands marks her low on social layer and probably low overall on resilience as a result so we are going to factor in some of that that relativity that we yeah. spoke about at the very start
3: some of the qualifiers yeah. um that mean Yeah, sometimes your family isn't the best source of support. So if you're low on that, but that means that you've cultivated a very strong friends network, that's perfect. Sometimes the most resilient response to a particular situation is to get yourself out of that situation Mm -hmm. and not use all of these other tools to stay in that situation for longer. If you can get out of a toxic situation, then you should. That could be the most resilient response. Mm.
2: Knowing the construct of the resilient survey and knowing the, the contributions being made by survey respondents, does anything pique your interest or curiosity that you'd like to examine closer?
3: I'm very interested in the strong overlap between the mind layer and the resilience measures that we had. And I would like to delve into that a little bit further and look at changing some of the measurements that we have in the mind layer to um be conceptually more clearly different to respondents but still kind of getting at the same mind factors that might be contributing to resilience and then seeing how everything relates do you
2: awesome. have a do you have a theory or a thesis on it
3: <laughs> well my theory would be consistent with existing theories that the mind is a very, very strong contributor to resilience. Mm. And I think so we discussed including measures of locus of control, for example. Mm. That would be very interesting to have a look at. I like that one. Yeah. Are
2: we going to give permission to Lise to do that? Yes. <laughs>
3: what, she, mostly, what she said. We're mostly scared of Les.
2: <laughs> Every time she comes to give us a, a back brief on how the survey's going, we're terrified that you're going to walk in and say, ah, it sucks. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, yeah, confirm our <laughs> imposter syndrome suspicions that we're idiots. But fortunately, no. No. And I'm excited about no. going a bit deeper and working out you know, the causation, correlation and, yeah. Yeah. Perhaps the little, you, you keep coming back to the word tools. I like it. You know, mm. what are the tools that are really important yeah. in differing demographics?
3: That helps strengthen these layers. Yes. And the other thing would be looking at different demographics. So yeah. is for women, do these layers, I'm, my hypothesis would be it's the same layers that are important, mm. but they might have carry different weights. Yes. So yeah. maybe the social layer will carry more weight for women as compared to men.
2: Yeah, awesome. we do just sit
1: everyone on the one bell curve at the moment, don't we? Mm. Yeah, but the, the beauty of this and the beauty of taking this scientific approach to it is we've got the ability to to really dig in and, and we've got the survey responses, we've got statistically significant data sets and so for all our listeners who have um, uh completed the resilience survey. Thank you very much for your support. If you haven't, um, then hopefully this has piqued your interest, not only in terms of what you can get out of it, in terms of the, the response and the report that you get, but also in terms of what it's doing for our ongoing research into resilience. And yeah, we encourage you to get involved in that at resilienceshield.com. You'll find a link to the survey. Uh, we will be updating it in the coming months based on this initial tranche of data analysis that Lisa's done. And we certainly look forward to uh, working with you in the future, Lise, uh, on this project. So thank you you very much for for everything you've done to date on the the Resilience Shield uh, and the survey. And thank you for your time today. Thank you. Good to see you.
0: Now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving Sixty.